Hi, I'm Mo, and I love pajama pants. And I'm TJ, and John Lennon's song Beautiful Boy was written about me. That's a lie. You can't prove that. <laughs> anyway, well, welcome, and this is... It's still new to us, damn it. A podcast about two guys watching movies that we've never seen before, while we try to prove that we are the smartest in the world. And we will prove that to you. Yeah. Sorry for my voice, guys. I got a sore throat, so if I sound weird, uh, than usual, I, uh, I apologize. You sound like one of those cool NPR DJs. And tonight, we'll be talking about the budget deficit. It's not a bad thing. Then college professors will love our show, then. <laughs> yes, it's they will. listen to. That's like a joke, but literally, every time I, I went into college, I just see professors with NPR bags, and I was like... NPR is a wonderful service, and I should listen to it more. Yeah, probably should, but I like listening to dumber stuff better, because it makes me seem smarter. That's right. It yeah. gets the dopamine flowing, exactly. doesn't it? Well, anyway, welcome in. Today, we are talking about... Midnight Cowboy. Released in 1969, directed by John Selinger. I hope I said that right. Schlesinger? Uh, Schlesinger. Maybe? Yes, yeah. that's probably better, actually. Director of Darling and Pacific Heights, the 1990 real estate horror movie? Really? It I've never seen weird. that. I remember watching it. I remember seeing TV commercials on TV Guide channel about it. And then I decided, oh, what the hell, watch it, Michael Keaton. It's about him just, like, ripping off a couple in a, in a real estate scam. And then, like, he's being, he's being really mean. And that's mostly it. <laughs> It's very weird. I watched The King of the Hill with Mike, Michael Keaton when he's the pig man. Yeah. And Luann dates him. It's like a Halloween episode. It's very disturbing. Yeah. It's probably more disturbing than Pacific Heights. Yeah. Yeah. I'll have to check it out sometime. Uh, written by Waldo Salt. Uh, Serpico. Oh, he wrote Serpico. Okay. Serpico. Yeah, he wrote cool. a lot of good movies. And Mr. Winkle Goes to War. Wow. Actually, when I was reading the book, I well, listened to the book. It turns out that he was blacklisted. He was one of the people that was blacklisted during the McCarthy trials. Oh, right. really? Yeah. Okay. But we'll get into that. We'll get into that book, too. Uh, tell him what the, the book you were reading. Uh, the book is called Shooting Midnight Cowboy. Um, okay, who wrote it? Let me check real quick. Written by... They were going to show me. Glenn Frankel. Nice. Yes. Uh, and you said it was a good read, right? It was a good read. Well, I listened to it on audio because I didn't have a time to read it, of course. So. It's still a read. Yeah, that's how people, that's how like talk show hosts get like read books and stuff. I realize that now. I think it's, they, don't have, they yeah. don't have enough time to read every book. It's like, a totally valid way of yeah, getting your you literature. Just, I read this on two times fast because I needed to read it fast. So. Nice. Yeah. So that's the trick, folks, okay? Because TV's a lie and we all know that. That's right. Yeah, it's not real, as the therapist has told me. <laughs> okay. Well, anyway, I'll get into a synopsis then oh, wait, before right, we... Wait, wait. Oh, wait. Who, who's a starring to you? You don't, you don't know that. Oh, gosh, that's right. Who is it you starring? No, Even though you watch it, you don't know. You're just like... I need to know. People. I need starring, to know. Uh, starring Dustin Hoffman and John Voight of Deliverance and Anaconda. Yeah. I'm sure he's most proud of that last one. I thought about putting Super Baby Geniuses 2 <laughs> on here because he was in that movie but i thought no any count would be better so even though it's a bad movie <laughs> <laughs> it's probably yeah it's it's still better than uh the baby geniuses movie yeah definitely okay um let's get into synopsis tj what is this film about so midnight cowboy is about a cocky texan dis- dishwasher named joe buck who dolls himself up quits his job and catches the next bus to new york city with the hopes of seducing and profiting off of the women of the big city his efforts, however, leave him broken destitute. Turns out it's a little tougher than he thought it would be. One evening at a bar, he meets a sickly street urchin and con man named Enrico Salvatore Rizzo, unfondly referred to as Ratso, and Joe thinks his fortunes are about to change. However, Rico grifts Joe of what, what's left of his money and leaves him in the company of a religious fanatic. Impoverished and alone now, Joe's desperation drives him into a steep depression, his mood only turns for the better uh, when he once again finds Ratso and, upon realizing he won't get his money back from him, befriends him instead. It turns out Ratso is a squatter and he takes Joe in as his roommate in the abandoned apartment building he inhabits. The two form an unlikely friendship with Ratso eventually becoming Joe's pimp, for lack of a better term. As the story unfolds, we learn more about Joe's past in Texas. Ratso's dreams of a comfortable life amongst wealthy widows in sunny Florida, and we witness the degradation of his health. In the end, not too much hilarity ensues. No. No, this is kind of a, it's a very gritty movie. Definitely is, definitely. 
So yeah, so <clears throat> I was reading the book. So this took place in 1969, New York. Now, New York back in the 40s and 50s was like the, I guess, urban playground of many stars and stuff. But it was a fabulous city. You know, everybody go there, get your dreams made and everything. But 1969, it was it was on the way downhill. I mean, crime was up. Uh, there was there were multiple strikes going on at the same at the time during 1969, during while they were filming. Uh, trash strike, water strikes, all that stuff. Yeah, yeah, so it was just basically, they were trying to navigate through that and also film this movie. Yeah. So they basically, so let me tell you the backstory of this movie. Okay, so this movie was written by, I think his name was John Hallis. I'll look it up real quick. He wrote the book that it was based on? Okay. He wrote the book. It's James Hellery. I believe I was saying that right. Hopefully, I listened to his name like 25 times during the book. <laughs> I forgot. It's a H-E-R-I, sorry, H-E-R-L-I-H-Y. So he was gay, a closet gay growing up, and um, he wanted to be an actor or a writer growing up, and he didn't believe himself a lot. He thought, oh, I'm worried, I'm worried. He met a lot of people, got through, and then wrote Midnight Cowboy. Uh, another director, John Schlesinger, the man who directed this movie, he is also gay. Um, doesn't really play into that much in the movie, but it really connects to the story of why this movie was made and everything, and why they did the movie. So John Schlesinger uh, was coming off a major bomb during this period. It was called, uh, I believe it was called The Maddening in the Crowd. He was going off, because he just did, he did a movie called Darling, which was a hit. It was called, uh, critically and financially successful. But then he did the Far From the Maddening Crowd, and that bombed. So he was trying to find a new project, because he realized that, like, one failure, and you're basically out of Hollywood. Yeah, I was going to say. We talked to him, we didn't talk to him anymore, so we need to find something that would be a hit, and then he found Midnight Cowboy. And what an unlikely hit yeah. this had to be. Yeah, definitely. Well, because it was supposed to rated X, and that's mm-hmm. because mostly... Actually, it's fascinating how they rated things back then, because yeah. um, the man who rated this was a psychologist. Because the psychologist was ahead of the rating system back then, because when the old studio code got thrown out, they didn't really have anything. So when they did ratings, they put some people in charge, my guess, former movie executives and stuff like that. But also, the psychologist was in charge. And back then, psychologists thought that gay people were... What's the word I'm looking for? The Wasn't past. it still considered like an actual disease, homosexuality at disease the time? Disease or like uh, something disgusting. Mental like, disorder? Oh, um, um. Oh gosh, I feel like I know the word. Um, trying to this word. Damn it. They were look at, looked at basically like how perversion. we would. Perversion, like perversion, that's the word, yes. That's what they think of it. Yeah. They thought that if young people watched this, they would think that they could be gay or they can sleep with other people of the same sex and. Mm-hmm. Like that, it was a choice, but they, they realized that now it is not a choice, it's who you are. Yeah, so it was very critical of critical making this movie, Midnight Cowboy. That's interesting, too, yeah. because yeah. I knew nothing about this movie going into it other than that it was the first and only movie to win the Oscar for Best Picture with an X rating. Yeah. I had no idea at all what it was about, I knew the stars. When I th- heard of X rating, I was like, we must see a lot of dong in this movie. Yeah. We didn't see any dong. No. We were so looking to see John Boyd's penis. You, yeah. You guys don't understand. No dong. I, like, I want to see penises. I am not gay. <laughs> I do want to see penises in movies. But it is fun. Well, it's got to balance out the ratio. We balance Just out, out of fairness. Now, but what's interesting, I, I mean, I didn't. Did you see this as an overly homosexual movie there's certainly some there's certainly some homosexual well, subtext but it's not overwhelming film. they didn't want to do that they didn't want to do a yeah. whole sexual movie because what i was talking to you about um what's his name uh the right warhol andy yeah warhol. andy warhol he actually made a very sexual very perverted film like this because he wanted to make his own movie when he heard about this movie because andy warhol back then was of course the head of the town he basically made art the art scene back in the 60s and made a lot of people famous that's also why he was kind of bad, but we're going to chat later, maybe, or not. So he made a movie like this, but it was more seedier, more sexy and stuff like that. And nobody really saw it, because that's not what they wanted to do. They wanted to give like the presence of it, but not really show it. Because mm-hmm. they knew it was going to be hard to make that kind of movie back in 1969. I mean, there's one scene where uh, where John Boy's character blows a college kid. He Well, he gets blown. He gets blown? Yeah, he got gone. The, the kid goes down on him in a movie theater. That's right. And they thought that would be risky, and it was, and uh, some people yeah. did not like it. Yeah. Some of the gay, actually, the gay reaction to this movie was not great. Because really? gay people saw this as uh, them just being seen as, like, perverted again, or as being dangerous, or something like that. 
which is I don't know. They didn't really present. I don't get a, any of that. Carrying well, it wasn't really. A I can't put thing. It was mostly right. like of like backway alleys mm-hmm. and men who are ashamed of being gay, like the college student, right, who right, was like who was hiding and stuff, and like the the man who tried to have sex with uh, John Boyd when he needed the money. Okay. He was like, oh, good so point. I can't good point. Doing this. this is all my fault and all stuff like that. That's right. That's so right. So engaged people as being bad, and then he made uh, actually Josh Sussman, John Sesslinger. So I want to say that name wrong like twenty times. So Sesslinger. It's all good. It's hard to say. Yeah, it's hard to say. Okay, he made a movie after this called Sunday Bloody Sunday, which portrayed gay people in a more loving light. That's not seen as being bad. Okay. Being perverted. It's seen more as being human and lovely. Okay, that's interesting because from the, okay, so from the perspective of a straight white male in the year of our Lord 2021. Yeah. I look at this movie and obviously there is some homosexuality in it, yeah. but it was never anything that seemed demonizing to me. Yeah. I figured well, it was well, kind of a whole, not demonization, but kind of just showing the whole grittiness and like the slumminess of that bustling urban, you know, the whole image of New York City as yeah. this pristine place. This shows the underbelly of it. And to me, it was yeah. just like the homosexuality is universal. It doesn't matter what class you're from. There just happened to be some in this movie. I didn't see it yeah. as demonizing, personally. Well, the, you know, Rizzo was talking to oh. the characters like, well, you're uh, an F-word, and it's like, I'm not an F-word. You think John Wayne's an F-word? And it was like, yeah, so that's so it was negatively light. So you're right. So him as very masculine. He did use, he did use the delay. F-word several well, times. This really like is that. a loving and caring movie about two mm-hmm. strangers who desperately need attention from other people, mm-hmm. and they find each other. They really, like connect with each other john boy sacrifices everything to help rizzo yeah and that you know i'm, I'm actually glad that, that you did mention that because i you know i always realized that my perspective in the year 2021 isn't exactly the same as a moviegoer in 1969 yeah so i can see where you're coming from i always just play off when a character uses words like the f word to refer to homosexual in a derogatory way yeah that that is, you know, that character's written as a jackass. You're supposed to like, almost laugh at them. Yeah. Um, this this movie really is an enigma because, again, I knew nothing about it, and it really is a character study of these two people who are at the very just bottom of the barrel in terms of class, in terms of society. Yeah, uh, John Boyd's character, what's his name again? Joe Buck. Joe Buck, uh... Luckily, he went on to have that successful broadcasting yeah, career. Successful. Just so you know it, people, Joe Buck was born a m- month before this movie came out, <laughs> or even a month after. So we do not know if Joe Buck is named after Joe Buck in this film. But yeah, so Joe Buck is a uh, not smart Texan from down south. Mm-hmm. Um, he tries to use he tries to form this persona of Joe Buck the cowboy. That's why he goes to New York because they've never. Because I think he thinks, like, they haven't seen a cowboy like me. They're going to love me. Mm-hmm. So he, then he goes down. Then he goes there. He finds out it's not like that. They don't love him. They think he's a fool. And he walks down the street and he sees, like, other guys dressed like him, too. And they're hustlers also. Yeah. So they probably thought the same thing. So Were they all... Were the other cowboys hinted at being homosexual? Well, not homosexual, but no. hustlers. Hustlers just doesn't hustlers, mean yeah. you're gay. It just means that you have sex for money. Well, right. You're a, a gigolo. You're a gigolo. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. But I wasn't sure if they'd yeah, indicated they indicated you know that how the they other cowboys and smoking. That's how they present themselves. That's mm. how people present themselves for sex. Okay, I'm guessing. I never done yeah. it before. But yeah, so then they said he's not smart. That's what Wiz was talking about. Like they see you as dumb. They don't right. see you as smart. So that's why he needs his guy then to help him too. Right. And it, it is an oddly sweet movie for how just dirty. It's like so. It's just grimy. Yeah, because that's what the city was back in 1960. Sure, I don't doubt that at all. It's yeah. just, again, it was uh, a, a real play, uh, really played on my expectations. You know, I think of Dustin Hoffman. I know him as the Oscar award-winning actor, right? And, you know, the star of Ishtar. <laughs> and yeah. to see his character, I, I, I thought he would be a character with some more dignity for some reason. Uh, again, not knowing anything about the movie, but, like, he is just, he's, like, partially crippled. He's, you know... You see his health degrade. His teeth are constantly unclean. It's just, he's not pleasant to look at. So, okay, so in the book, he's actually like that. Dustin Hoffman tried to make sure that the book portrayal and the movie portrayal were like almost 100% the same. You're talking, oh, the Midnight Cowboy actual oh, novel. The actual novel. Okay. Sure. The movie. And he does a great job doing it. Absolutely. And uh, he gave a good, what do you think of Dustin Hoffman's performance in this? Great. Okay, so yeah. he was nominated for Best Actor in this. So was John Boyd. They were both nominated for the same okay. category. For the same movie. Either of them win? Uh, let's see. Did John... No, they both lost. John Boyd and... Doesn't Hoffman. Mm, I wonder who they Doesn't Hoffman didn't attend the ceremony for some reason. I think he was filming a movie. 
John Voight was there, and also John Sessinger was not there. He was filming Sunday Blood Sunday. Okay. Yeah. No, I, I thought they were both great. Yeah. I, 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 this was John Voight's breakthrough? I believe so, yeah. Nobody really knows who John Voight was. They're talking about that, how um, this is just a breakout of, of Justin Hoffman. He was in The Graduate, which everybody loved. That movie was the hit of like yeah. 1967, I believe it was released. So everybody loved it. So some people knew Dustin Hoffman. People people would go up to him and say, Dustin Hoffman. Which I think they had some trouble filming because of that, but maybe not <laughs> that much because he looked so different maybe. Yeah. I kind of forgot what the book said. But yeah, uh, Mike Nichols, the man who directed The Graduate, was pissed off at Dustin Hoffman for taking this role. He was like, I made you a star. Why are you not in star roles? Because technically he is the side character. He's the sidekick. Yeah. But he was like, doesn't often didn't care. He would take any role that he wants to because he's an actor. This is also, during the 1960s, the changing of the film industry was huge. It was going on. Okay, the studio system has went down the drain ever since the uh, various lawsuits against the studios. Um, so That's good. That is good, yes. Yeah. But also it took away a lot of things. Like, instead of films having actors they can rely on, they had to find new actors, uh, casting directors, they need to find new casting directors. Because usually it would just be one or two people just casting these movies. They wouldn't care if they fit the ball or not. They would just be like, you're going in here, you're going in here, you're going in here. Yeah, so you see they had their own system, so they had all these things they can rely on, but now they can't rely on it anymore. Hmm. So the film industry was falling apart. People wouldn't wouldn't go anymore. Uh, films that usually were hits were not hits anymore, such so as musicals, westerns, um, maybe film noirs. Any popular films of the 1950s, any dramas like that, were falling down because nobody wanted to see musicals and westerns anymore. So then the new directors, producers, all that stuff started to come to Hollywood. You know the story, uh, George Lucas, Steven Spielberg, uh, Martin Scorsese, they came along and developed this whole new artiste look to cinema. That has not really happened in America. But now it's happening. Now films becoming more dramatic, more real. So like a lot of this like counterculture is happening right now. Sure. World's changing. Nobody wants it to change, but it's changing. Students are rioting. Hippies are going wild. I mean, by, like two months after this movie was released, a Stonewall riots happened. You know, you ever heard of Stonewall riots? No. The Stonewall riot, riots uh, were in 1969. Maybe it was like 1969. Uh, police infiltrated a gay bar. They basically tried to break it up. You know, that's what they always did back in the 60s. They find a gay bar. Put everybody out, cause some damage, you know, like stuff like that. But the the gays who were in there were tired of it. Drag queens, gays were tired of being treated like this. So then they started rioting, and then all these riots took place on multiple days, and basically they started the queer liberation movement. Wow, I never heard yeah. of that. Definitely, and I'm not saying this film is the catalyst for that, but it definitely sees like how like gay liberation is now coming out. Like soon. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Because th if I had seen this movie not knowing that it was an Academy Award winning one, I don't know if I would have suspected it was ever mainstream. Not to say it's a bad movie. It's no. by no means a bad movie. But it's it's a movie that makes you think. And the general yeah. populace does not like yeah. Is that fair to say? They don't like movies that make you think too much. As great as something bad. like Kramer versus Kramer is, it's, it's pretty straightforward in its yeah. story and its... Uh, you know, the plot is very simple. This one, it doesn't have as much of a plot. No. But it's got so much symbolism and just subtext yeah. to it. Because basically this whole story, this whole movie is about lonely, being lonely. Yeah. That's it. You see him in the flashbacks of Joe. When he was little, he was abandoned by his mother. And then he was basically, not abandoned, well, yeah, he was basically abandoned by his grandma. Because he would just go out with her boyfriends and I guess he was a hooker. I'm not sure, but... They might have hinted at that, yeah. yeah. That, but yeah, basically left alone most of the time to watch movies. And then um, he tried to find love with the girl who was raped. Um, what was her name? Played by, I right believe now. her name is Jessica Salt, who was the daughter. Annie. Annie. Yeah. Who was the daughter of Waldo Salt. Um, the writer of the movie? The writer yeah. of the movie, yes. He tried to fall in love, he, thought he was in love, but then the whole thing happened with his friends and her being raped. And that causes her to lose her mind and then be sent to a sense. So he's left alone again. And then he goes to war. He goes joins the Navy. And then his grandma dies and he's left alone again. Yeah. So now he's just in a cycle of loneliness that he's trying to find someone to be with. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a, a, a romantic partner. And he finds it in Ratso Rizzo. Mm -hmm. And that, that, I think, is one of the movie's biggest strengths. Is I'm, I'm watching this movie and... When he sees Ratso the second time, and he's like confronts him because this guy took his basically his last twenty dollars, you know, grifted him. 
And I'm wondering, why the hell does he just become friends with him? What is this loyalty? And then he's, like, serving him, and he's waiting on him, and he's, like, there for him every second. And the movie does a great job of showing you these flashbacks of him in Texas. Because he comes off as this cool and confident yeah. uh, cowboy, even if he is very naive. He comes off as cool and collected and confident, but through these flashbacks, you do get to see his life has been one of abandonment by the people that he cares about. Yeah. And so when he meets Ratso, he clings on to him. And yeah. it's not necessarily an unhealthy relationship they have, because Ratso, I think, genuinely feels bad for taking his money, but he's a, he's a con artist. He's, he's the drag of society. He has to survive. Right. So he is good. a society. He is a rat. Yeah. He is a rat. Mm -hmm. He is a survivor. Exactly. And that's... That's the Mason whole thing because mm -hmm. you can't just be a bad guy in the movie and people cheer for you. I mean, that's why Joe Buck, when Joe Buck, uh, when the college kid uh, pays for sex for Joe Buck and he doesn't beat and he doesn't give him the money, Joe Buck doesn't beat him up because that's mm -hmm. not because that's not how he is. That's, Joe Buck's yes. very, like he may seem tough, but he's not tough. He's mm -hmm. actually a very sad person who just wants somebody to be with. Like yes, to be and in fact, him. when's the only time he resorts to violence? It's at the behest of. Rico, Rizzo, yeah, Ratso. Yeah, that's also main thing they were trying yeah. to do. They're trying to show that, yes, like Rizzo is costing him his hustler life that he wants, but he really cares for Rizzo so much that he's willing to throw it all away for him. Did he really, really want to be a hustler, or did he think it would just be an easy way to be have a comfortable living with companionship? I swear there was some kind of subtext there where he was raised from a young age by his grandmother, I'm not saying he was it was an Oedipus thing or a Freudian thing where he was in love with his grandmother, but he definitely sought out his his goal was to bed wealthy older women. Yeah. Widows possibly. That could be it. And yeah, maybe, you know, sneak his way into the will. But regardless, he yeah, you mentioned the scene with the college student who pays him for oral sex in the movie theater and when he can't pay up, he's obviously humiliated and he's upset by the situation. Uh, but he lets him go. The only time he resorts to violence is when he's trying to get money to take Ratso, who is dying, frankly, to Florida, which is Ratso's dream is to live in Florida, where it's nice and warm, and he can, you know, you see his fantasy scenes, and he's running around the beach with Joe and these yeah. older, you know, the, all these all these women. Yeah. And the only time he, Joe gets violent is with the gentleman who is on a business trip and picks him up for sex and... You know, Joe robs him and maybe kills him. No, he doesn't kill him. He okay, just beats him up he beats him up. Puts yeah, the phone in his telephone mouth. in his mouth. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I like to think he didn't kill him, but good. I, yeah. I wasn't sure. But yeah, that was the only time was when it was something that was important to somebody else. He's not. He's a selfless person. Very yeah. selfless. That's what they're trying to make him out to be in the very beginning. Like Sylvia Miles. Yes, yeah, Sylvia Miles. So he, she tricks him to giving her twenty bucks. Yeah, because that's how he is. He's very gullible. He's very sweet. Yeah, he's from, he's from Texas. That's how people in Texas are. He's about to leave, and he says, "You know, I hate to do this, but I need to. You know, we need to. I need to ask you for some money." And she breaks down crying, like, oh, "I didn't know that's what this was. You know, I'm yeah. so humiliated." Yes, and uh, she was nominated for best supporting actress for this role. So yeah, she was in the movie for five minutes. Really? Yeah, she was. Yeah, I was kind of surprised by that too, but it was a very quick, quick thing movie. It was very high grossing, so yeah. I guess they needed it. Kind of like Nick Now, you know how The Martian was nominated for Best Comedy? Because they needed this Matt Damon to be there. Well, Sylvia's not really a famous star either. I don't know. I guess it was just... I She's one of Warhol like, superstars, right? No, she wasn't a Warhol superstar. No. Oh, she wasn't? Warhol okay. had nothing to do with this movie. Um, well, yeah. there's definitely characters based on Warhol. Yeah, okay. The so ones that invite him to the, the party. party yeah. That was definitely helped by Warhol. Because um, yeah. one of Warhol's uh, photographers actually helped film that scene. Oh, cool. Yeah, so okay. I forget his name, but he was not like any other Warhol supporter. Because uh, Warhol... Paul Morrissey. Paul Morrissey, yes, that's his name. So Paul Morrissey was a very straight-laced man, very conservative, did not drink, did not do drugs. Unlike a lot of Warhol's stars did. Because they basically fed on every world Warhol did. And Warhol controlled them with drugs and fame. And he can basically destroy your career in five seconds if you don't do what he does, which is why he's a terrible person, which I just found that out. Bummer. So, yeah, so he basically, he helped, des like, design and what the party looks like. The filmmakers, <clears throat> sorry, once again, my voice. The filmmakers, they thought they could, like, cut the, not cut the whole scene, but make it better. They thought it was too long, didn't really do anything. 
the film, which I kind of agree with. I mean, do you really need to have the party scene? Because it was, it was very long, and basically the only reason why you need it is to see Rizzo fall down the stairs, and that's basically it. And to, yeah. show, and to show him shoving cold cuts into his pockets. Yeah. But it is also where Joe does find a woman that he ends up, you know, actually yeah. successfully, you know, pimping himself out to. Yeah, yeah basically they're saying, like, it was too long, they should have cut more of it, and basically just had the main points, and then that's, that's the main complaint of the party scene. It's not, that's not unfair to say. Yeah. The I only the party scene. I thought the party I liked it, great. too. Yeah. I liked it, too, and I wouldn't cut it. Um... They didn't, want, they didn't want to cut the whole thing. They just wanted to cut down certain parts of it to make it more tighter. I mean, you could always do... You could say that for almost any scene of any movie. But yeah, it's an interesting scene where you have... You know, you have Joe and Ratso there. And Joe is just having a blast because like, he is kind of this fish out of, out of water, naive kid from Texas. And he's invited simply based on his looks, which is what he wanted in the beginning, kind of, was to be valued for his looks. Partially, yeah. right? And he ends up smoking weed for, I presume, the first time. Yeah, he thinks it's a cigarette. Probably weed or doused with something. It was probably laced with something because he starts yeah. hallucinating. Yeah, and meanwhile, Ratso, it's, it's, Ratso's at the buffet eating all the food and shoving it in his pockets. And at one point, one of the hosts says, you know, what are you stealing it for? It's, it's free. And it, I wouldn't cut any of that, personally. I think that shows, yeah. I think there's a lot of actual character development. Well, okay, so one of the main points of the party scene itself was to show the different counterculture of the 1960s during that time. Because it was just basically anybody, they would just take anybody and you would party with them. Whether you'd be poor, gay, straight, an artist, uh, a fight, fighter pilot, they didn't care. They would just invite people to hang out and party. And it was basically just like that for everywhere. I Sounds mean, awesome, yeah. frankly. It that does. sounds cool. Then you find out, then you, you hear the rest of the bug, and like, oh, the 60s were a terrible time because a lot of people did drugs and had mental problems and they didn't know how to deal with it. And <laughs> Well, that's that's the unfortunate result of the yeah. war on drugs. The, 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 the truth war on drugs, it was the 60s itself. War on drugs well, was the 80s. Well, Nixon started in the 70s. He did? But no, absolutely. Oh. See, the, the, well, the way I see it is... There's a time and a place for drugs like that. There's a time and a place, and that would be that Warhol-esque party on a day that you don't have any responsibilities. Yeah. And that's that's kind of it. Um, was, though, every day was a Warhol-esque party. And that's when it gets problematic. Yeah. No question. Yeah. No question. I'm not, I'm not advocating, uh, you know, reckless drug use. But I do think that those kinds of parties are more or less harmless. Everyone there, was anyone there, did anyone there come off as toxic? No. No, not at all. Now it's a movie. Like free love. Right. It's the same, but so like everybody was there: rich people, poor people, middle class people, hippies. It was just Mm -hmm. basically a whole combination of people. Yeah. And that was basically the scene back in the '60s. It was just like a whole bunch of people partying and being together. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's great, on on paper anyway. Mm Mm-hmm. But uh, all I'm saying with the war on drugs is I feel like things like that had been demonized in later decades and that's why you don't see parties like that maybe but you bring up the rich people the woman that he ends that joe ends up going home with is wealthy she's well off and uh i actually almost forgot about this we were talking about the gay subtext earlier and joe goes home with her and he's unable to to perform yeah they were also talking about that they were talking about how like uh, i believe a reviewer who reviewed this movie saying like that's one another joe's like uh battle loneliness because he, he's humiliating himself in front of this rich woman who is maybe financially rich, I don't know, but that doesn't really matter. Um, but yeah, he's humiliating himself, he can't get it up, um, he loses that scrabble, he shows that he's not smart, and the woman's just making fun of him. And then he finally shows it yeah. that he's not, like... Playfully makes fun of him, though. I didn't ever get the sense that she was cruel, did you? Yeah, no, but yeah. Okay. But it's all, a, 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 sorry, I'm trying to think of the word, uh, a combination of things sure that was going on through the film oh and, yeah, yeah absolutely so, so joe shows a it's a compensation not, thing like i'm not queer or something mm-hmm. like that like i'm not a sissy well she almost and insinuates yeah. maybe you're having problems because maybe you're gay and she says it yeah. in like the most innocent way but yeah. it's almost like something goes up. that's when he's able to yeah joe's just like no and then he forces her down mm-hmm. and then she they go along with it and then they have sex yeah so yeah i liked her she was a good character definitely yeah, yeah. but that, that almost more or less brings us to the end of the movie, kind of, because yeah. after that he goes back to the apartment and Rizzo is in, is sitting on the bed and or Ratzo and he's sitting on the bed and he admits 
tearfully that he can't move. He's paralyzed for yeah. <laughs> lack of a better word. he has lung congestion or something like that. They never spe- specify it, do they? Maybe in the book. In the book, I think he said lung congestion or something okay. like that. I don't know what it's called. But his now. body's just breaking down. His body's breaking down. The yeah. cold's getting to him. So he needs to go to Florida. So this is the this is the moment when Joe Buck needs to decide whether to keep on hustling or keep on hustling, leave Joe behind and let him die or do a major job, get enough money to go to Florida and go to Florida. Because yeah. Rizzo doesn't want to go to a doctor because the doctors would put him in Bellevue because they think he's crazy or something like that. Yeah. So he's like, yeah, take him to Florida. So he decides to do one more job and he meets a man. The man does not have sex with Joe because the man's trying. It's like he's repenting his sins to Joe because he's gay. But he's, he's hiding the real self from everybody else. So then Joe then just beats him with the phone. And then he steals the money and they go to Florida. And unfortunately, Rizzo dies leaving Joe again. The cycle was only in this continuous, unfortunately. Yeah, it's, yeah. A, it's a pretty iconic scene yeah. uh, when they're on the bus and he realizes that Ratso's no longer listening to him. Or it's, it's kind of a... Was it on the bus? Or maybe it was even before that, but Rizzo... Or Rico, Enrico, that's his name, yeah. Yeah. Asks him, hey, when we go to Florida, I don't want to be... He never liked the term ratso. It was always insulting to him. Uh, But yeah, he's... He realizes that he's not uh, not there anymore on the bus. He gets the bus driver's attention to try and get help desperately. The bus driver goes back and looks at uh, Enrico and says, well, there's nothing I can do. Just close his eyes. It's a bummer because it's yeah. like I guess I kind of understand what the bus driver's saying. I don't think that I mean you didn't have cell phones back then. You couldn't just call. I guess you could stop and get a payphone. Yeah. But he didn't want to alarm the other people on the bus, I guess. And it's it's a shame. It sucks to see Joe alone again at the end. Yeah. I guess that's because they I guess that's what they wanted in the movie because that shows what life is that sometimes life does not have a happy ending that it could end once again the loneliness. But mm-hmm. Joe wants to change. It's a great that's ending. Why, that's why he told he told Rizzo that I don't want to be hustling anymore. That was wrong for me. He got plain clothes. He dropped a cowboy act, and then unfortunately Rizzo died. But let's, we hope that Joe continues to improve his life and becomes a good becomes the person he wants to be. Mm-hmm. Finds love. Yeah. Finds friends and finds happiness. That's all we want. Even yeah. though we saw him do, I'd say only one really bad thing. Yeah. Um, we do want him to be happy. Yeah. And. That was, uh, yeah, that was the major thing. They wanted to put Joe as a very sympathetic person. Right. That even though he's doing these things, he's on his body for people that they wanted him to be very sympathetic. He didn't want to hurt the old man. No, but he had to. He, he had the to money. get the money to say Rizzo. Yeah. Yeah. At the in the end, it's it's tough. It's a, a beautiful movie in a lot of ways. Yeah. And it's a devastating movie in a lot of ways. Um, but hey, on a bright note, one thing I found interesting, and I, I think the rumor was that it was improvised, but I think that's been debunked, but I still love it anyway, is there's a scene when he first meets uh, Rico and they're walking across the street and Rico's like, you know, I'm going to show you the ropes or whatever. And a car almost hits them. Yeah. And Dustin Hoffman very famously yells, I'm walking here. And when I heard that, I nearly shit myself because I... Because I feel like that's one of those things, maybe it's just Rick and Morty that I heard it from, but I feel like that's one of those things that entered yeah, been, America's been, lexicon. Yeah, it's been in the cold, pop culture cycle for like years now. Absolutely. Yeah. So, he didn't really improvise the scene. A taxi didn't just come out of nowhere and like mess up the scene and they just kept it. Uh, in Morton Salt's earlier scripts, that was in the movie. And so, they, he improvised the line, I'm walking here. That's what he improvised. He did, okay. Yeah, so that's basically the improvisation of that Okay. Because I'd heard maybe, I, I think I heard that the, or read that the initial script called for him to get, like, dinged by the taxi and then roll up on it, like, oh my god, like, my neck, my back, like, to sue or whatever. But yeah, uh, I like the choice they made here just because I think that it's just so iconic and yeah. Hoffman's delivery is excellent. Yeah, he also told me the, the Seinfeld episode where... Uh, <laughs> I don't know what Kramer was doing, but they were on the bus. And it was exactly the like, nosebleeds, yeah. The nosebleeds. They play the music. Yeah. Speaking of, I, that song, Henry, yeah, Nielsen. Harry Nielsen, is that his yeah, name? Yeah, Harry Nielsen. Let's see if I can find. Great song. I never knew what that song was from, and it plays all throughout this movie. Yeah. Uh, Everybody's so Talking, is that what it's called? I think, yes, yeah, Everybody's Talking. They, they did a multiple of songs for this movie to find the right pick, but they couldn't find it, and then they found the song, and when they played it, like, this is it, this is the song... This song fits perfectly with the movie itself. 
And so they just kept it in. Because I think I don't think the song was going to be in the movie, but the editor and John Sesslinger kept on watching the movie while the song was playing. And like this song fits perfectly with what the character uh, Joe Buck's going through. Fred Neal. That's his yes, name. Yes, oh, sorry, I forgot. Yeah, sorry Fred about Neal that. wrote the song, but then Harry Nilsson. Oh, Harry Nilsson sang it. Sang it, Okay, yes. cool. Yeah. Great song. Yeah. It really fit. It did really fit the movie very well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I enjoyed that. Yeah, and the book went on to talk about like Bob Dylan and the counterculture, and then how the counterculture went from being like love and peaceful to very violent and stuff like that. That really didn't have anything to do with the movie, but talks about how the counterculture of that day. Yeah, it, it, you really do have to watch this movie and keep in mind when it came out because that that is an interest. This is such an interesting time. The end of the '60s must have been wild. Now. Obviously, it was based on a novel that came out in 65, so it's not, you know, you know, the the movie itself, I will say, is probably absolutely a uh, time capsule for, I mean, this was what? So May. This was probably before the Manson murders. Obviously, it was filmed before then. Yeah. But, like, you just had Bonnie and Clyde two years ago. Yeah. That changed movies. And we talked a little bit about it earlier, but this... Again, I, I don't know if this movie could exist with the popularity that it had any time before this yeah, and or any time after. Well, they talked about how if this movie was made today, could it? And um, John Sesslinger actually went up to like a famous Hollywood executive now. He's like, if I give you a, a script about a, about a dumb uh, restaurant worker from Texas who, might, who wants to go to New York as a hustler and make a living and then friends a homeless person, would you make that? And I'd be like, no. Probably not. Yeah, probably not. It'd be an indie movie if everything's anything. a sequel or uh, a superhero movie, which... or it just doesn't get seen by yeah. the masses. Now, let's talk about. <clears throat> sorry, let's talk about the the phrase "it couldn't be made today," something like that. Do mm-hmm. you agree with that? Like when they say you can't make a Marvel books movie today, do you agree with it? They can't make a Marvel books movie today. Not necessarily. It's just I don't think they could make it the way Mel Brooks would make it. Yeah. And when I say that, I mean like when I saw Django Unchained. I thought this is the closest we'll ever get to another Blazing Saddles, because I don't know. I don't believe that people are quite as easily offended as we think. Yeah. I think there's a small and very vocal portion of society that likes to voice their displeasure yeah. anytime. I don't know. You, I guess you make fun of a marginalized group, maybe. Yeah. Even though I think that in reality the group is very rarely being made fun of, so much as it is just. Comedy, I, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know how to put it. What was like the main like the problem they had with people making like a Mel book because they couldn't make fun of racism the way he did, or was it like just the racism itself was in the movie that they couldn't? Do? Now, I now times were different because yeah, you know, like in I don't know. Do you does he get a pass because of his Jewish heritage or anything like that? Because he does he know. does a lot of like Hitler jokes, which. I don't know how those come off. Well, people people argue that because he brings up Hitler, that it's not really doing anything. You're still bringing up Nazism, and it's still... Well, that's the unfortunate yeah. part. He respects his audience. Yeah. The unfortunate part is there are a lot of people out there that can't decipher the tongue-in-cheek and the actual message. When he has something like a Blazing Saddles, and he has all these townsfolk that are using the N-word and are... <laughs> openly racist to this black sheriff that's not mel brooks saying that that's cool or that's all right it's like um i don't know kevin smith said about chasing amy if you've ever seen that there's a character played by jason lee who basically says all lesbians need is a good deep dicking and he's asked about that in an interview and he says i'm glad you brought that up we made the jackass character say that we don't believe that the idea is you laugh at that guy because in the end, he's also closeted gay, and he's jealous of this girl dating his friend. I digress. The term, could you make it today? I think you can make anything at any time. You just have to have tact about it. Look at Seinfeld. I often say that about Seinfeld. It would be hard to make an episode like the Jimmy with Kramer being mistaken for somebody with mental disabilities. Yeah. It would be hard to make an episode about Jerry giving his girlfriend NyQuil so that he could play with her toy collection when she falls asleep. It's all about tact. It's all about how you... How you do it. Yeah, Larry David, I think, is the the best at that. Mel Brooks is great, too. Yeah. I don't know. 
It's hard to answer that question. Yeah. And I just rambled for like five minutes. You can cut that all out. It doesn't matter. No, I'll keep it in. That was a good ramble. Like, well, that's, like that's very nice of you. Okay, well then... Um, no, you answer the question, big guy. What do you think? Yeah, I think you can make whatever you want during this day of age. You just got to do it right. You got to figure out a way to... Because the main problem with that is Archie Bunker. You know Archie Bunker? Oh, yeah. From the family. Yeah. People thought Archie Bunker was right. That's a that's great the example. Problem. The whole writing crew said, this is a jackass. You're supposed mm-hmm. to laugh at him. He's wrong, but people agree with him. That's a great example. And that's what a lot of people have today. Like some people blame like the anti um, sympathy that's going on right now to like shows, like comedies, maybe like South Park and the rest of Development. They didn't really have heart, and they really so just like cynicism of the world, and then let like, people just try that with more cynicism. They didn't spend it with heart. That's why people say like that's it's a joke, but it's really not a joke. So you're right, but you gotta do it right. And Mo Brooks did it right. He did had some heart, and he made the right. And he, he made the made sure that you know who is the jackass, who is not the jackass. That's those are all great polls by you too, because yeah. I could absolutely see like, you know, I was a kid when South Park was getting big, and children don't understand the difference between satire and, um, you know, on the on you know face value yeah. uh, views. And the Archie Bunker one is also excellent, too, because I can absolutely see a lot of people um, relating to him, sadly. And he really was the character that was the fall guy. Yeah. You know, he was supposed to be anyway. Mm. It is interesting. This is a movie that I think should be watched by more people. Yeah. Uh, I think it's a very, very monumentally important movie. And I don't think it's a movie that I ever would want to see remade or anything like that. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's kind of timeless in a way. Um, okay, so I guess we should wrap up what we think of the movie. Okay, when I when I first watched this movie with you, it didn't really connect with me a lot. That I don't know if it connected with you. Like I don't like when I watch a movie, I, would, I see if one if it looks good, two if I feel it, if it makes me if it had a connection with me. I don't really have this connection, but I do not say this is a bad movie. This movie is actually great. The way it was shot was very interesting and fun. I like the intershots of the TV shows and the commercials and all that stuff. That was great. The radio. I love the radio when he had the radio all the time because that was his communication with the world and then he had to find out how to sell it. It was devastating when he had to sell yeah, it. Definitely yeah. devastating. But like I said, John Boyd and Dustin Hoffman gave a, a great performance of these two characters. And would I recommend this movie to somebody? Yes, I would. I would like Watchmen that Cowboy. It's really good. It's not fun, but it's really a heartwarming tale of two people connecting with each other during hard times. Yeah. yeah, so I would watch this. I would recommend this movie to people. Yeah, I actually am in lockstep with you on this. When I watched, when I when we watched it, I spent most of the movie just trying to like, just waiting for like the moment that made it this the the behemoth in film history that it is. Because it really is. It's really one of the most lauded movies probably at least of the 60s I think so right okay, so and once best again Rotten Tomato scores mean nothing but this is what the Rotten Tomato scores was it was 87% critic score audience score is 88% and that's now yeah so for a movie that's 50 years old that's pretty damn good yeah but some critics had problems with it they thought it was maybe too sappy or too maybe some people had problems with the gay stuff mm. I don't know if Roger Ebert Roger Ebert had like some criticisms on this movie it wasn't because of the gay stuff I don't think but it was uh, other things. You could absolutely criticize it. Yeah. I don't think there's anything wrong with criticizing it. Yeah. Is this a movie that is plot-driven? Not really. Is it a feel-good movie? Not really. No. This movie's an experience. And like you, I didn't get the full experience while we watched it. But it's one of those movies that you think about. And you keep thinking about it. And you think about the little, um, all the little idiosyncrasies of these actors. And the performances and the characters and how they, how they come off the screen, and even in the recording of this podcast, I have learned to appreciate this movie. Yeah. I would hell yes, I would absolutely recommend this to somebody with an open mind. This is a very uh, different kind of movie, but it is one that is so worthwhile, and yeah. it really is a timeless story. Yeah, I mean, I think I've really said everything. It, that I could that I feel about it. It's very character driven. Yeah. And these the performances of the performances of the two leads and everyone else, frankly, it is what sells it. The direction's great. It's cinematography is great, even though it is yeah. 
dirty and grimy. Yeah, that's one of the problems he had. He hated like mostly who Ebert. No, not Ebert. Uh, John Sessinger had a. He would argue with other people on set because he wanted perfection. He wanted like people going to watch this. He's worried that nobody would watch this film, so he would fire the cinematographer. Then he hired someone else. I'm glad that it was the hit that it was. I yeah. couldn't. Could you imagine a movie like this coming out now and being that that critic uh, commercially popular? Well, yeah, its budget was no way two million, which is over budget. They yeah. wanted a million dollars. United Artists uh, box office was forty four point eight million. That's unbelievable yeah. to me. That is because un- I can't imagine mainstream uh, viewers going to see this a movie like this nowadays. Yeah. But that that actually is awesome. I think. I think that's. A good sign. Mm-hmm. Like you said, now big hits are, you know, sequels or universe movies. And yeah. It is what it is. Yeah. Okay, so um, let's give you some interesting facts before I give the red button the MVP up. Sure. Okay, so okay, this movie was nominated for Best Actors, which was Dustin Hoffman and John Voight. Uh, Best Point Actress, which was Sylvia Miles. She was nominated for Best Point Actress, unfortunately lost. Um, and also was nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay by Wild Salt, which helped revitalize his career. Uh, it won Best Picture and Best Director. So, uh, before Dustin Hoffman auditioned for the film, he knew his all-American image could easily cost him a job to prove he could do it. He asked the auditioning film executive to meet him in a store, street corner in Manhattan, and he dressed in filthy bags, and he like basically tricked the director into thinking he was a beggar. <laughs> That's how he got the role. Nice. Yeah. Uh, Dustin Hoffman kept pebbles in his shoe to make sure he got them. Clever. Yeah. Very clever. Uh, like I said, John Sessony was having panic attacks mostly because he thought this film was never going to be successful. He was like, who the fuck's going to see this movie? Who the fuck's going to see a movie about a dishwasher who just goes to Miami, go to New York to get fucked? I think that's what a lot of perfectionists do, though. Yeah. You said he was a perfectionist, right? Yeah. They're their own biggest critics. Mm-hmm. No, I'm glad this movie was successful yeah. on his behalf. Yeah, so those are some interesting facts. Um, okay, so the Red Button's MVP of this film. No, I'm going to do... I'm going to do the co-MVPs. But I think it both needs to go to John Boyd and Dustin Hoffman. There's no other choice, yeah. yeah. So, they were excellent. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, they, you have these two huge movie stars, and I don't see them. That's, to me, that is the sign of a great performance in a great movie. Now, a great, you can have a great performance in a not-so-great movie, sure. But this was one where I didn't see them throughout the whole movie as John Voight and Dustin Hoffman, but I saw them as Joe Buck and Ratso. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I also tell that because I said the names Ratso and Joe Buck more than I said John Voight and uh, Dustin Hoffman I did for other movies. I think that's a big sign. Yeah. We talked about Ali when we watched this, which also John Voight won an Oscar for, mm-hmm. and he was great as Howard Cosell. Now, it's a, it's a solid movie, and I love Will Smith. I thought Will Smith was good as Muhammad Ali. But when I think of that movie, I say Will Smith. I don't say Muhammad Ali. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Anyway. That's, that, that's basically how, like, Stardom has, tra- has changed throughout the years. Instead of seeing characters, you now see actors. That's true. So, that's also yeah. part of it. You're right. You're definitely right. Yeah. Okay, so that's what we thought about Midnight Cowboy. So please go watch it if you haven't. Yeah, seriously. And um, let's have some fun. Sorry if I said that weird. <laughs> it's all right. Let's have some fun. Okay, so I couldn't think of a game for this because I read the book. And you can trivia on me. You can give trivia on me because I know a lot of it. Yeah, he's way he cheats at this. Yeah, I know. So he's going to take over the trivia and i got to come up with a game of my own. Yeah, uh, I thought about doing the porn parody movie, uh, movie guessing game. But <laughs> I, I need more time to research that. And I couldn't do it on the fly. So I decided to steal another thing from another podcast. Oh, I used to listen to a podcast called Doug, Lo- Doug Loves Movies. It's a great podcast. He goes check it out. Um, and they used to play this game called How Much Did This Shit Make? So I'm going to give you three movies, and you got to guess how much did this shit make. Combined or individually? Individually. Okay. Okay, so the first movie since, since Midnight Cowboy released in 1969 is the highest grossing film of 1969, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. How much did this shit make? This one made 41,000? Or 41 million, rather? I don't know. I can't tell you that. I thought you did earlier, but okay. No. Oh, this movie, the Midnight Cowboy. Midnight Cowboy, yeah. Midnight Cowboy made 44.8. 44.8. Okay, and Butch Cassidy was the highest grossing of the year. Yeah. Okay, so I will s- for inflation, too. So. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, I will say 60 million. 
They made a total of a hundred and two oh, million me. dollars in the box office, uh, hundred percent domestic. So full number one hundred two million three hundred and eight thousand eight hundred eighty. Let me tell you, if I had that amount of money, I would have all my bills paid, and I wouldn't stress about anything. Yeah. <laughs> okay. What's the next one? All right. The next film is your favorite. It's your favorite film, TJ. Ooh. The Big Lebowski. Oh, fucks heavily with the Big Lebowski. Okay, I'm pretty sure this one was a flop. Or at least it was modest at best. Okay, I don't think it was. Domestic. I want to do domestic. I want to give you domestic. Okay. But you want to do worldwide, because that's like every total combined. What's the typical one that I think of? I like, think, I think uh, worldwide. Okay. Okay, okay we'll do Worldwide. Big Lebowski. This is we'll Worldwide. $250 million. $46 million. Worldwide? Yeah. Holy shit, that was a flop. Yeah. Okay, wow. This game's hard. Yeah. And okay. I hate your guts. Thank What's you. the last one? last one is your, one of your favorite characters of all time, James Bond. Yeah. First James Bond movie, Dr. No. Ooh, Dr. How much did it make worldwide? Oh, man. This is tough. It was obviously a big hit because, you know, it spawned 8,000 sequels. Okay. Next time we do over-under rules, I can... Uh, That's a great idea. Yeah. I like that. I think that's how they did it in the podcast. I just forgot. It's not bad. Yeah. Okay, so Dr. No. Shit, I'll say $65 million. $16 million. What? Yeah. That's what? <laughs> that's, that's what they have was domestic, then get international. Domestic, $16 million. Oh, so you switched the rules up on me, or did well, you say that? It, just, it said worldwide, $16 million doesn't have international, so okay. I can't blame you for that. That's insane. Yeah. So it only goes $16 million in the U.S. Dude, inflation, something else, huh? Mm-hmm. All right, well, uh, I'm terrible at that. Yeah. When I have more of those release, <laughs> I'm going to make it harder. Well, I oh, win. Easy. I haven't decided. <laughs> well, I will... Um, I will come up with the game for next time. And speaking of next time, I guess we don't have to spin the wheel, but my God. (laughs) So we go from one type of uh, gritty and dirty underbelly to another. Yes. Next week's movie is Porky's, the 1980s. Why did I put this on the list? I don't know. You want to watch 80s called classics. I did just watch Bob Clark's classic Black Christmas. It's a good movie. Well, too bad we're not watching it, so... Well, I've seen it. Oh, yeah. Go watch it on Criterion. It's on the Criterion yeah, app. Porky's is not. No, because so, it's probably awful. Yeah, it's probably going to be awful. I'm going to go into this movie with very, very low expectations. Yeah, it's probably going to happen. Yeah. So, hey, I guess that's it. Uh, thank you for watching. My name is Michael, and I love PJs. And uh, I don't know what you were watching, but thanks for listening. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm the beautiful boy, TJ. Take care. Bye. Let's have Bob and Mitchum play us out. Mm-hmm.